The story is told, though who can say if it be true, of a clan of medieval warriors awoken in modern-day Manhattan, of the animated series that told their story. It is an age of darkness. Superstition and the sword rule. It is an age of fear. It is the age of gargoyles. Welcome to Voices from the Eerie, a Gargoyles podcast. Hello and welcome to Voices from the Eerie, a Gargoyles podcast. I'm Zach Joyner, the owner of the website that powers the program, spidey-dude.com. And I am the executive producer of the network that powers the program, the Spidey Dude Radio Network. Before we get started, though, I wanted to thank our patrons at patreon.com slash Network, Greg, Jurgen, Vinkman, Scott, Kaylee, and Phoenician. Thank you for your support. And if you want to get the show, this show earlier, check it out there, as well as other fine perks that you'll get whenever you become a Patreon subscriber. There will be some exclusive content that's only for Patreon subscribers coming to you very soon. But before I turn it over to our hosts, I want to encourage you to check out our other fine programs, such as Spidey Dude Experience, ASM Classics, Make Mine Mayday, Bogle Rider Variety Hour, the Salby Sima Era Podcast, Clone Saga Chronicles, and a Spectacular Radio, a Spectacular Spider-Man-related show that start a few familiar names to the program. Please follow the network on Twitter, at Spidey Dude Radio, and this show, at From Erie, and feel free to send them feedback at gargoylesvoices at gmail.com leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast catcher such as apple Podcasts, spotify podcast iheart radio podcasts amazon audible as well as google podcasts it helps us raise our vis- visibility and like share and subscribe for more at spidey dude network youtube.com slash spidey dude network also, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, as I mentioned the Twitter threads, but also follow us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Network, as well as Instagram, if you like Instagram, instagram.com slash Network. With that out of the way, it's absolutely my pleasure to introduce the hosts of our show, Jennifer L. Anderson and Greg Mashansky. Welcome back to another episode of Voices from the Eerie. I'm your co-host, Greg Mashansky. And joining me is my co-host, partner in crime, Jennifer L. Anderson. Hello. And joining us again is the co-creator and supervising producer of the first two seasons of Gargoyles, the writer of the SLG comic book, and the writer of the upcoming Dynamite comic book, Mr. Greg Wiseman. Hey, everyone. And we are happy to introduce the scriptwriter for this episode, among several other episodes, including Enter Macbeth, Leader of the Pack, and others, Mr. Steve Perry. Nice to be here. Thanks. Thank you for coming on, Steve. It's a pleasure to finally meet you. So um, why don't you, you tell us a little bit about yourself? How did you become a writer? How did you get into this field? <laughs> well, I kind of always wanted to impress my, my, my English teacher when I was in English 3. She was gorgeous, and I had nothing going for me. So I, I wrote some stuff and fantasy stuff and, and turned it in. She liked it, so that's that's pretty much how I got into writing. <laughs> Later, that works. I did some other writing from magazines and, you know, and, and books and stuff. But that, that was a good start. She was just gorgeous. That's a great answer. I like that. <laughs> and you've become a very prolific writer. I've seen your name on television and in novels. And I'm just curious. And Greg, you've written a few novels yourself. You can jump in on this too. What would you say is the biggest difference between writing for novels and television? How do you approach each? Oh, wow. Uh, Television is, I mean, the visual medium. You have sound, but you have to to see the pictures. And so you have to write with the idea of of showing people what you want them to see. Whereas when you write a book, the reader supplies the pictures. Um, The novel, you know, you'll do a description and you'll, you'll explain what you think it looks like. But generally speaking, readers will, will put their own vision in there. So it's it's a little easier on one level to write for for uh, television because you know you're going to have those pictures that are selling your words. Whereas when you write a book, you know it's all words. So I think the main difference, and, and you have more room in a book. If if you write a script for TV, 
most of these things, uh, the half hour shows are, are you go to one 36, 38 pages, and you know, you're, you're looking at, at, you know, with commercials and everything. You only got a half hour to fill. If you write a book and then translate that thing into something like DVD uh, or, or some other method, um, I, you know, MP4 or 3, something, you're looking at a, a quite a lot of material. So, yeah, you have more room with books um, and you can do a lot more stuff in terms of, of uh, background. Yeah, I, I most, I'd concur with that. I mean, I think that, you know, the tricky thing since uh, I started in comic books and then went to TV, so two visual mediums, and then moved to novels and prose from there, is that suddenly I'm like compensating for uh, the lack of music, you know, the lack of a uh, musical soundtrack. I'm like, okay, I've got to use words to get things across that I'm used to having the music cheat and help me out with, you know? Um, and then on top of that, uh, the other thing that happened, uh, so I've written six novels and in each case I've written two novels in a series three times. So two times three, six. So, um, and the tricky thing that I learned the first time I wrote a second novel in the series is you got to, you wind up having to describe things again that you described the first time out. And on the one hand, you're like, oh, well, this won't be a problem. I've described this already, right? Except you realize I can't use the exact same language that I used the last time. <laughs> so, you know, the first time you come up with what you think is like the perfect way to describe a location or a character's appearance or, or whatever. And then you realize, oh, in the second book, I'm in the exact same place, with the exact same character, and I can't use the exact same words. Whereas, you know, in a script, I'd just say Superboy shows up on the Watchtower. And then, you know, the fact that the Watchtower looks the same, it should look the same. The fact that Superboy looks the same, he should look the same. Um, but now I can't use the same words in the books, in a novel. So it, and it, I was just like so annoyed when I realized that. <laughs> like, oh, I worked so hard to figure this out. And now I've got to work hard again. I don't like working hard. Um, <laughs> and so that was a challenge. Otherwise, I think for me, at least, the process overall is pretty similar. It's just a novel's, you know, big. Um, so I'm still just using index cards, but instead of like a few hundred index cards, it becomes like a few thousand index cards or something like that. Um, and the way, so the way I break it down and beat it, that, that's similar. It's just way more complex and way more cards and that kind of thing, but it's not a different process. Um, not when it comes to breaking the story. When it, again, when it comes to actually writing the prose, um, that, like we said, that has its own set of challenges that don't come with being a, that come with not being an individual medium that time out. Yeah, well, I really like that. I remember the Steve. I remember the one of the first times I saw your name. It was in the '90s, and it was on a book that was attached to a rather large multimedia blitz you probably know where i'm going with this uh jen definitely does yeah. but um i remember in the 90s there was this little <laughs> thing called shadows of the empire which i always suspected was george lucas testing the market to see if the property was still viable this is a few years before the special editions and then the prequels Oh yeah, it was. That was that was the whole plan. We were testing the waters and seeing did Shadow of the Empire had everything but the movie. We had books, we had comics, we had uh, graphic novels, we had uh, music, there was a soundtrack, we had toys, we had games, there were, later it was a video game. I mean literally everything that would be connected to a movie except the movie was there. And and that was because there was a gap and they were the books were just just starting to come out, and you know, you didn't really have a lot of material, and they wanted to see whether or not there was still any interest. And it turned out there was still some interest. It was it was a fun was project, really? very complex. Right? It was it was the uh, it was they they wanted to see if it was going to work. They had a pretty good idea it was going to work, and we were all sworn to secrecy, and and we we all did our parts. Uh, 
but it was there were a whole bunch of us that got together at the ranch to to sort of game out how where we were going to go, who was going to get what characters, how we were going to divide everything up. And uh, I sat and took notes, and then came home and pretty much wrote a, a, a pretty extensive outline based on the meeting that we had, and then floated that, and it went around to all the departments, to all the different you know media. And everybody signed off on it. We changed what we needed to change, and that became the basis for the book, which was pretty much the basis. That that outline was pretty much the basis for for the rest of, of the tie-in stuff too. Cool, nice. nice. And Jen, I believe you bought all that stuff. I believe you once said to me, <laughs> every bit of it, every single bit. <laughs> They didn't yeah, give me I, any of that. Any of that that I wanted, I had to buy. <laughs> <laughs> it was an investment. It was definitely an investment. <laughs> oh, look, I've, I've got a couple of collector's pieces. When when they did the book the first time, I, some of the other Star Wars, Water, uh, Star Wars writers I knew personally. Uh, I was talking to Kevin Anderson, who was um, pretty well known at that point, and we were having dinner with another Star Wars writer, and we we started talking about the whatever you do, don't let them put the name of your city on the book anywhere. I said, why is that? He said, because what will happen is you'll get a phone call at 3 o'clock in the morning from, from a fan who wants to talk about the book. And at 3 o'clock in the morning, you don't care if they loved it or they hated it. You really are probably not going to be focused very well. And so don't let them put the name of your city on, on the on the book jacket. And I said, okay, fine. Well, sure enough, they put the name of my city on the book jacket. But before it came out, they sent me a couple of, of copies. They sent me a copy of the book jacket. They said, here, this is what we're going to do. And I said, no, 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 don't put my name on the book jacket. Is it too late to change that? And uh, my editor at the time, uh, Tom Dupree at Anthem, said, no, no, that's no problem. We haven't done any book stuff yet. We can just jump those covers. And so they did. They pulped those the the dust, what they call a dust jacket, you know, the outside cover of the book, um, except for three copies, all of which I have. So, nice. So at one point I got hold, of, yeah, I got hold of a guy named Steve Sansley, who was the Star Wars guy for all of the collectibles. And I said, is this going to be working thing? He said, oh yeah, just hang on to it. It's just going to get to be worth more and more every year. <laughs> so yeah, I have those frames in, in different places around my house. Nice. I would definitely put them up. I would definitely show those off. <laughs> nice. Oh, yeah. I wanted the cover art, you know, the, 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 the cover art for Shadow of the Empire was just gorgeous. And um, I couldn't afford it. I couldn't afford the pencil drawing for that. <laughs> so so I had photo, color photocopies made of, of the thing you put up, but... Um, the, some of those some of those cover artists did really well uh, after they left Star Wars, and I couldn't afford them. I mean, for what I got paid for the book, I I would have had to to get paid two or three times that much just to afford the cover art. <laughs> that is awesome. Gargoyles will return. Prepare yourself for Star Wars Shadows of the Empire. The evil empire has struck back with a vengeance and a new villain. The crime lord Shizor schemes to replace Darth Vader as the Emperor's second-in-command. With Han Solo held frozen in carbonite by bounty hunter Boba Fett, it's the rebellion's darkest hour. Now, join Jedi warrior Luke Skywalker, hard-charging Chewbacca, and go undercover with heroic pilot Dash Rendar and his booming outrider. But can Han Solo be freed and Shizor be stopped? Star Wars Shadows of the Empire. Look for the authentic figures and vehicles from Kenner. We now return to Gargoyles. And speaking of writing for a series that is already going, how did you uh, get the Gargoyles gig? Do you remember at the time? How did you come into this particular oh, yeah. pro- show? Oh, yeah. I, I had been writing animation. My, my, my writing collaborator at the time, Michael Reese, he was a story editor on Gargoyles. Uh, he and his wife were living in Southern California, and uh, I would go down every so often, and we would go to you know cattle calls at, at various uh, animation studios to, to try and get work. Most of what what I was writing was uh, was syndicated stuff. It was, it was stripped in the afternoons. Um, so I wrote several 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 shows, several shows. Uh, some of them with Michael, some of them on my own. And so she became story editor on Batman, one of the story editors on Batman animated series. 
and I had to write some episodes there, and they, they turned out to be pretty decent. Um, and then I, Gargoyles, which in a lot of ways was a better show. Um, I don't the, the look maybe wasn't quite as sharp as, as Bats was, but but you know they had some really good ideas. And so when when that came along, he said, "You'd be interested in writing one of these." I'm, yeah, sure. So that's how I got the gig. Uh, I knew somebody. <laughs> I knew the story editor. <laughs> And uh, that's pretty much how I got into that that aspect of it. And what is it like for you in a series like this? Batman, those episodes were mostly standalone, and most animation scripts before this were standalone. Gargoyles had really tight continuity from episode to episode. Yeah, that's that's trickery. That's trickery. You, you really have to have somebody overseeing that. I mean... In Star Wars, you know, Leland Chi looked over all that stuff for us. And when we got into to Gargoyles, the producers there knew this. I mean, Greg knew all this stuff. He had, you know, the, 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 the whole first season, I think I think uh, Michael and, and Bren wrote most of those. Um, so they their continuity was okay because they, they knew what had gone before. They had written it. Um, by the time I got to the point where I was writing episodes, I had to have somebody looking over my shoulder and, you know, they'd say, no, can't do this. You know, we have to leave this out because this was already reported. You know, it's like a Bible. Um, you have to lay all this stuff out in advance and, and put it down so that, that people will know where not to go. But yeah, when you, when you have a, a long arc and, and certain, that was one of the things that made Gargoyles interesting is that it was one of the first shows to have a long arc. Um, it, it's both, more more interesting and it's and it's more complex and you just really have to have somebody that knows the continuity looking over your shoulder and that's pretty much what happened anytime I I wrote something that wasn't quite right somebody would you know the story editor or would say hey no you can't do it that way do it this way no problem I mean, that's that's what they're good at yeah I mean I think Steve's right I think season one you know uh, Michael Brin and Lydia probably wrote most of them and Steve wrote one or two, I think. Um, but Michael was story editing all of them. So it was all pretty, you know, there were only 13. Um, so it was all pretty straightforward, keeping the continuity straight. It was only in season two when we had set a one story editor, four story editors that um, each doing about 13, um, give or take, uh, that it became a more complicated process and that's when I had to police it a little more. That's that makes it sound negative. I don't mean to. Uh just, you know, I had to make sure we still wound up with one show and not, you know, four shows by four different story editors. Um but yeah, it was definitely an easier go season one when we just had thirteen episodes and one story editor supposed to fifty two episodes and four. But we managed I think pretty well. You've mentioned the tier and tentpole system you came up with for the second season a little bit before, mostly be, as a result of Enter Macbeth in the first season and the production problems that episode had. But I've noticed in this tier especially, you have Fox get out of jail, get engaged to Santos, and married all within a few episodes of each other. Plus there's that reference to uh, Talon early on. So it, I mean, these episodes aired within two weeks and it's cool that nothing aired out of order. I mean, when, uh, I believe you came up with the system to avoid that should an episode come back late. Um, yeah, I think that tier system is something we in instituted for season two, um, maybe imperfectly, but also I think that, you know, the first six episodes of season two, we had put into script before we actually got a green light for the season. Um, you know, it was the, the sort of a luxury that we had gone ahead on six. And I don't think we had sort of fixed on the tier system until the green light came and we realized how many we were doing and how it, we had to do the tier system. And so uh, just to clarify that for your audience, what we did is we had these tentpole multi-parters, City of Stone, um, Avalon, and um, The Gathering and Hunter's Moon. So those were our season two multi-parters. 
And the idea in theory was that any episode that came between these two ten poles could in theory be in any order, that they wouldn't impinge too much on each other, that the continuity would affect things in the next tier after the, after the tent pole. But in theory, um, it wouldn't be a problem if you had to rearrange episodes um, within, you know, uh, between the tent poles. So that way we could, from a production standpoint, sort of keep laser focused on those tent poles to make sure they came in when they needed to. Um, and, but if, you know, we ran into trouble on one of those middle episodes between tent poles, between those multi-parters, if we had to do a little reordering, we just would no harm, no foul. And we did twice, uh, in season two have to, in essence, air an episode out of what we would call our ideal order. Um, and I think it showed a little bit. Not a lot, but a little. And so our attempts to make every episode within a, an individual tier completely exchangeable with any other episode in that tier was imperfect. I don't think we quite pulled it off. It just, we were close, but it, it, we wanted more continuity than we really should have done if that was the system. Um, and so you'd find little small ways that to add continuity and then realize sort of after the fact, Oh, gee, if we added that, then we probably can't air this episode before that episode. And a couple of times we had to, and it wasn't ideal, but it wasn't, you know, a deal breaker. Like it would have been in season one, if we had aired enter Macbeth out of order. Um, because so much happened in enter Macbeth that was really sort of life changing for the characters. Um, that we couldn't sort of put that one on hold while we fixed the animation uh, and just pull the, another one that was in better visual shape up quicker. We couldn't do it. And we were able to do that a couple of times. But I think in this first eight episodes that precede our first season two multi-parter, which was City of Stone, six of those eight had been pre-ordered. And um, I think... There's a lot about those six that was interchangeable. But then when it came to seven and eight, which were the first two episodes, seven being the one we're talking about today, I have the Beholder, and eight being Vows, which I suppose we'll talk about in a couple of weeks. Um, yeah. Those were, those were just like, okay, we need to do these before City of Stone. We need to. Um, and obviously... Fox has to get engaged to Xanatos before she can marry Xanatos. It doesn't work the other way around. <laughs> so um, it, 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 I don't think we were focused on the 10 pole tier system for these first eight. Um, it only sort of worked out after city of stone was sort of where that tier system sort of went into play. And like I said, even then it wasn't perfect, but it, it saved our butts a couple times. Let's talk about that engagement scene. That engagement scene has become iconic within the fandom. It's also, I've seen it get a little bit of controversy from more recent new viewers who think that he should be, that Xanto should either be more romantic or they think it comes off as a little bit too sociopathic. Whereas I think these two just know who they are, and this is how they are comfortable with each other. Maybe this is why they're comfortable with each other. Oh, yeah. uh, I mean, I always read it like... By... Go ahead. They hear me talk all the time. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead. No, please, seriously. I'll get my words in uh, by the end, trust me. <laughs> no, I agree. You know, I, I, was, I always thought they were sociopathic, sort of, but... Maybe maybe more narcissistic than sociopathic altogether. Um, and the, 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 I, I think the whole idea was was to prevent these people as, as trying to connect up, but in such a way that we see that there's some flaws there that have to be resolved at some point. I mean that, and of course you'll get to that at the end when you have the the, the tag out the, the final line, you know you know about weakness about love and weakness. Um, that's that's how these characters function. They, they live, I mean, 
people that are very smart sometimes have a problem that they live from the neck up. They 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 think a lot, but they don't they don't have the same connection to their feelings. And uh, that's one of the ways you explore this is that okay, you're dealing with people that are one guy who certainly is super intellectual, very smart. Um, you have to deal with with the way that they look at the world, and that's sort of how they look at the world. So. Yeah, the other thing is, and, and I, I, I do this a lot when I talk to people, we're talking about something that, that was written years and years ago, is that you tend to view the past with today's lens. And there are a lot of things that you look at now and you kind of cringe and say, well, you know, that doesn't hold up too well because we've, we've changed as a society. But you have to kind of look at the, a friend of mine, a writer, Daniel Keith Moran says, you have to kind of look at the, the path with old eyes. You have to, if you were there during that period and you saw that and you were looking at, you have a different view on it on than someone who's considerably younger who maybe wasn't born when this thing came out. They were raised in a different world. And so they're going to have a different view. And, and sometimes it's, it distresses them that well, I can't believe people behave this way, but you have to say, you have to say, well, they did behave this way. And we were, we were trying to reflect the society that we were writing for on what was the norm then versus what's the norm now. I also think this scene holds up just fine. I mean, it's very nineties in the, you know, in the wealth consumption and all that kind of thing that's on display there. But um, I also think the scene holds up great. I mean, they're clearly equals. It's not, uh, you know, no one's being bullied. But I agree with Steve. I mean, what what is going on there is that they're both sort of kidding themselves. The truth is they're crazy about each other. They really are in love. Neither and, wants to admit it. You, you know, but you get to see to like their little like facial expressions and stuff. It, the animation is so good in this episode that you're, you you can see that they're trying to hide this from themselves. Yeah. I mean, this was, you know, we've talked about past episodes where the animation just wasn't quite living up to what we had hoped. This is a really good episode. There's one scene that, uh, one sequence, I should say, where, and the animation isn't bad in it. It's just not at the level of most of the episode. But this is one of our truly great animated episodes. And you do get so much more out of the facial expression here. Uh, it's all pretty delicious uh, to my mind. Um, and I think that, you know, you've got these two people who think of themselves as being above the consideration of love. Like, Hey, we enjoy each other's company. Um, we're both great genetic specimens. Um, you know, the sex is great. Uh, we have the same goals. We, you know, we want the same things, we should get married. Let's just do this. Yeah, that's pragmatic. And to seal the deal, here's this gorgeous thing I'm giving you, right? This heirloom. It's not an engagement ring. That's for lesser beings. I'm going to give you <laughs> the goddamn eye of Odin. You know, this incredible, fancy thing. And, you know, one of the things that's fun for us is that um, the eye of Odin shows up in an earlier episode is just a MacGuffin with nothing about it. You know, it's just this prize, you know, it gets stolen. Big deal. Um, then we find out in this episode, Oh no, it's, it's got all these magic. It's a magical trinket. It's not just a trinket. It's a magical trinket. You know, it's really cool. And then, you know, down the road, it away but you know oh no it's actually the eye of the god Odin it's his eye um, you know it's been transformed into jewelry you know um, and that was one of the things I think for Frank and, and Michael and I with Steve abetting us here you know is that was fun for us that we take a notion and we just keep building on it more and more and more um, so that, you know, in essence, you're sort of playing off the tropes, you know, uh, the audience sees this jewel that someone's stealing and it's great. That's, yeah, we get it. That's, that's the prize this episode. Then it's like, oh no, it's magical. Oh, okay. Oh no, wait, it's the, you know, all that 
escalation from across multiple episodes. It's just like every time the audience thinks they have something figured out, we just say, no, it's more than you thought it was. Um, we did that with like the Amir. We did that with all sorts of um, elements in the show, characters, uh, again, trinkets, whatever, you know, <laughs> we were not shy about that kind of stuff, but it's what made it fun for us. And I think fun for the audience too. And then, you know, what all this is hiding that becomes more and more obvious as the episode progresses is, um, well, in particular, Xanatos' feelings for Fox. We felt a little bit like we'd sort of established Fox's feelings for Xanatos going back to her brother's keeper. But it was less clear if, if Xanatos felt the same way. And, you know, uh, the pack episode from earlier this season where they kiss at the end and, and he calls it true love. That obviously is a step in that direction. You see that, oh, they they make out. Okay. I just thought she had a crush on him. No, no, they make out. Okay, but is it more than that? Yeah, it's not even just that. He's actually proposing marriage here. Um, but he does it in, in almost clinical terms. And then by the end of the episode, you realize, no, he's, he's in love with her and vice versa. She gets a... Once she turns into... Uh, the weird fox. She actually gets a little rapey. <laughs> I have that in my notes. I have that. <laughs> I kind of forgotten about that till I rewatched it last night. Tossing him down but on the she, bed. Uh, and... Yeah, she doesn't try to eviscerate him. She throws him mm. down on the bed. Um, I'm like, oh, what's the plan here? <laughs> well, we're not going to find out. Oh, um, but, uh, it was. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, wow, that's pretty risque. <laughs> <laughs> it all happens so fast that I think it's easy to miss. But uh, but uh, if you're a grown up, I think it's easy to see too. <laughs> Steve, you're about to say something about that. Yeah. that. It, it, it's always a war with the S and P, the board standards and practices. It's what you can put in these shows, and I happen to know that many writers, especially story editors and producers, love to see that they can sneak past the censors <laughs> um, because you know. That's what they do. This is part of the game. Oh, well, let's see if they catch this one. And and uh, I thought that when I saw that sequence, I said, oh, somebody's playing. Somebody's having fun. Um, and I didn't know if it was the animator or, you know, that they had you know, just decided to not pay attention to that. But, yeah, there's, there's lots of stuff that, that uh, with, with some of the shows I worked on, you just get back a big red note. No, you can't put this in the show. Okay, fine. We'll figure out a way around it. We'll, we'll we'll come back around there and, and come from another direction and see what we can sneak past. Every writer I know does that. Every writer I know sneaks things back. You go back and read books, um, and you go, oh yes, I see. Yeah, I don't know. And this is just a, a quick aside. There was a Roger uh, Rogers Alatney, a fairly well known science fiction uh, fantasy writer, spent eighty pages once in a book setting up a pun. In which a character who was called the Shan of Ibeck has a seizure and falls off his horse. And the line is, and then the fit hit the Shan. And I was reading wow. And I fell out of my chair with the seizure. Um, writers do this all the time. We're 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 evil people. We we like to, to play these games. <laughs> and we're shameless. Yes. <laughs> I also have to compliment, even though we don't have any of the artists here, the design of the Werefox. I like how unfeminine it looks. There are no uh, breasts. There's no eyelashes. She's not waif-like. It's this huge, powerful-looking beast. Yes. Uh, I love the design. I have one problem with it, which is that it was too obviously Fox because of the tattoo from moment one. And the idea was supposed to be initially that we would only see, I, I'm the one who wanted the tattoo there. You know, that the, the blue fur, you know, to match her ta eye tattoo. Um, but I also um, tried to make it clear as our artist went into storyboard, make sure you're only showing her from the other side. 
in that first sequence in the market before we know it's Fox, before we see her transform in uh, um, back at uh, the Erie building when Xanatos confronts her. I'm like, in the scene in the market, please only show her in profile and only from the side without the tattoo. So, of course, you get over and over again all these shots of her either straight on or in profile, but on the side with the tattoo. And I'm like, well, yeah. not much mystery there then. Is there? <laughs> um, and then on top of it, um, you know, nowadays on, you know, I used to have to write log lines for all the episodes and the challenge in writing log lines is always, how do you make it interesting enough for people to want to watch without giving away all the secrets? And I noticed last night, on Disney Plus, the logline for this episode is Xanatos, something along the lines of Xanatos proposes to Fox, but his engagement present turns her into a werewolf. I'm like, well, okay, you've just given away the whole. <laughs> They're bad about that. They're really bad about that. I know I wrote, I know I wrote loglines for every episode where I worked really hard to give it just enough juice so that people would be intrigued without actually giving it away. And of course, I have no idea what happened to those log lines. I'm sure they're in some file folder somewhere. Um, but clearly someone just went through the episodes and said, what happens in this one? Oh yeah, she turns into a fox, a werewolf. Not even a weird fox. She turns into a werewolf. You should see um, the log line for future yeah, tense. Some guy who had nothing to do with the show just wrote these things up and each one seems to give away the entire the one for the edge definitely does too. <laughs> the one for future tense is the worst offender. God, don't even tell me. I guess I'll find out soon enough. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so that's one thing that drives me a little crazy about the episode is that, uh, you know, in that original scene uh, in the market, the idea was not, oh my God, look what's happened to Fox. The idea was like, ooh, new creature. Wonder what this one's about, uh, and then it's revealed that it's Fox. But instead, you know, there's no doubt it's Fox pretty much from the moment you see it because we just see the the uh, the eye tattoo from moment one. So obviously, who the hell else could it be? <laughs> uh, so you know, you try, uh, but it doesn't always quite work. I think it's all, it was all correct in the writing. It's just somewhere in the boarding, that message to only show it in profile from one side just didn't get across to the artists, and we wound up with what we wound up with. I keep thinking about this episode from her point of view. The eye has to be affecting her mentally as well as physically because this has been going on for about a month. I imagine she finds herself waking up for lack of a better term, naked in a pile of trash often and stealing a trench coat. And, she, and now she's just got a closet full of trench coats. <laughs> well, no, thank God trench coats are abandoned all over Manhattan in, you know, in set locations. Uh, oh, Broadway picked up one this episode, too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's a high trench coat availability, but... Um, yeah, I mean, I think the idea is that it's addictive. Um, you know, on one hand, she knows it's kind of horrible, but she's clearly kind of addicted to it. And then what you see throughout the episode in these neat little moments scattered here and there are, uh, you know, it's it's foxes versus the eye for vying for control of her. Um so, you know, she has moments when you sort of see recognition come back into her eyes and then the eye of Odin on her, uh, around her neck glows. And then that, that moment of foxness sort of vanishes and the monster's back. But I think what we tried to get across throughout is that no matter what, this is still about insight into Fox. That's the thing. We wanted it, the eye of Odin powers to not just be oh it turns you into a werewolf no that that doesn't make sense for everybody that's what it did to her but it wouldn't do that to anyone just anyone so we tried to show that that the idea is it sort of takes your inner self and makes an external 
version of it, or at least some aspect of your inner self. So you get her lusting over David, or you get her um, self-loathing moment where she's seeing Elisa, but she sort of hallucinates that it's herself. And then she goes in for the kill against herself, or at least the person she perceives to be herself. So I love those little moments throughout this, the episode where you sort of see her at war, sort of an internal war with the eye and with herself. I think they're kind of cool. It also says to me there's so much with this character, especially with every character, but with this character to explore if she has these feelings of self-loathing. Yeah. And um, Halloween-themed episodes, they pop up a lot in your work. Some fan fan of Halloween? I mean, who isn't? But (laughs) I've noticed every single one of your shows, except for Star Wars Rebels, where I assume Halloween doesn't exist, has a Halloween episode. Yeah, Halloween's fun. Uh, but for Gargoyles, it just seemed particularly useful in that, uh, you know, it's just what Brooklyn Broadway and Lexington are talking about. You know, we're not putting on a costume to hide who we are. We're actually putting on a costume to hide what we are. And in fact, Goliath doesn't even need a costume. He just walks out there and assumes he's in one. And, you know, Keith, as this witch, got this, this voice coming out of this really thin witch. <laughs> you know, uh, unabashedly female looking witch with an unabashedly male voice coming out of the mouth saying, that is a great, great costume. And you just know that, um, that witch is high. Um, (laughs) (laughs) well, they are, they are at Bleecker street. Go down there sometime. You can smell pot all over the place. Right. Well, (laughs) especially now, but, um, you know, I, I mean, I don't know, Steve, what you had in mind when you wrote that line, but it, to me, the line probably was more utilitarian. It was just, you know, getting the idea across that everyone's just perceiving this as a costume. And then you hear the way Keith reads it. It's like, no, this is special. <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, and, um, and then, you know, someone else saying a costume over a costume. That's brilliant, you know, or whatever the line is. But um, the idea was that, teenagers, Brooklyn, Lexington, and Broadway, they were going to have some fun with it. And so Broadway had probably bought that detective costume or had had Elisa get it for him, um, which is really just the coat and the hat, right? Uh, in preparation for Halloween and then used it and basically got it destroyed during their previous adventure in the Silver Falcon, right? Um, so she had to get him a new one, <laughs> which probably was a little annoying. Yeah. But she clearly really likes Halloween, too, because she went all out for her costume. Um, and oh, yeah. you have to know that she doesn't choose Belle lightly. I mean, A, it's very clear, or we decided it was clear that Elisa is a big Disney animation fan. <laughs> we just love that idea. You know, allowed us to really hit the nail on the head with the Beauty and the Beast thing. But in-universe, clearly... She couldn't have gotten that costume and thought anything other than what we all think when we see the two of them dance. You know, coming off the mirror when it becomes clear that for the first time he's starting to look at her in a different way. And she's refusing to look at him in that way. Or at least trying desperately not to. That she's fighting a losing battle because otherwise, why do you choose that costume? You know, you pick uh, Little Mermaid or something. You know, I mean, you just don't pick the costume where you're going to be dancing with the big uh, monster uh, in the yellow dress if you don't have those kind of feelings for him. Um, yeah. And now was that was uh, that like what? It was just like okay, we're going to make make her dress as Belle. Like, would did you have to get permission to use Belle at all, even though you're with Disney? Because I know we've had problems with that in the past. Yeah, for whatever reason, I don't recall this one being a problem. I'm sure we had to get permission. 100% sure. I think it probably helped that, you know, we changed Elisa's hairstyle to match Bell's, but we didn't try to put her in a wig or anything like that. You know, it, it, it still very much looked like Elisa wearing a costume. But my guess is someone, and I don't remember this, so maybe I'm wrong, but my guess is someone said, 
you know, we sell bell dresses. Is this going to be like product placement? Because we can't do that. And we're like, no, it's not product placement. It's just the Beauty and the Beast gag. We're doing Beauty and the Beast gag. And, and someone must have just said, I mean, this isn't even an S&P issue. This is sort of a business affairs issue. And when I, I think I mentioned the whole bit with the Mickey Mouse watch that they just refused to let us do. Um, I don't recall this being an issue per se, but it, I can't imagine that someone didn't bring it up. And then, you know, said, all right, fine, just do it. It's okay. It's worth it or whatever. Um, now, the irony is, is, of course, you know, if this were Warner Brothers doing a Looney Tunes episode, of course they'd do it. They wouldn't even hesitate, even though it's a different company <laughs> ripping off Beauty and the Beast, you know. Uh, but <laughs> us ripping off ourselves was always controversial um, for whatever reason that we could not fathom whatsoever. I mean, I literally would have conversations where I'm like, you do understand that you own this, right? Well, yeah, but, you know, it's a different division. I'm like, I, I understand that, but you understand that it's still one company. We're not going to get sued by feature animation. We're <laughs> not going to sue TV animation. It's just not. You know that, right? You understand that, right? Yeah, but, you know, there are, there are rules. I'm like, uh... You know, and you have these conversations that are just crazy that you just like, I can't believe I even have to have this conversation. Um, and if there was one for this, I, I blanked it out. But uh, I, at the same time, I can't imagine that there wasn't, you know, 26 years ago or whatever, however long it's been. It just feels like something that I would have had to talk someone into. Um to get it passed. But I just, and, and you know, one of the things that's so great is that the animation is so gorgeous in this episode. So Elisa just looks beautiful in that dress. Um, and the funny thing is, is that there's a scene in it that I thought when I was watching on Disney Plus, I'm like, is there a scene missing? I'm like, didn't there used to be a scene where she pulls her gun? And so, you know, I watched on Disney Plus and I kept rewinding going, did I you know, look down and miss it. And it wasn't there. And so I actually went and got out my DVD copy. Cause I'm like, I swear that isn't there a scene where she, you know, sort of hikes up her dress and we see that the gun is on a holster on her garter belt. And it wasn't there on the DVD either. And I didn't, cause in order to pull out my VHS tapes, I would have had to pull out my, one surviving VHS machine, and I didn't have the energy to do that. I, um, I do not remember any such scene. I think I would remember that because I had them I, all. But see, I feel like I do, and I don't know if it's, you know, Mandela effect or what, but I feel right, like exactly. like that like that sounds like legit to me. I mean, I do remember Maybe her pulling her gun and Xanatos seen... taking it, but... <laughs> Right. And then later she pulls off the skirt and you see where the holster is or was or it no is, you know, so it's all all the pieces are there. But I actually feel like there was a scene where we saw her pull the gun and and it's not there. And it wasn't there even at the DVDs from this point, nearly, you know, season two DVDs came out, what, like 20 years ago, 18 or something. But um, but it did make me wonder if I actually pulled out my old VHS tapes where I see that scene there, or am I just nuts? Which is possible. <laughs> you know, I, I I know someone who has gone through every version of these, every Aryan version, all the retakes, who probably would know the answer to this, and I will hit her up later. Um, Steve, do you remember if it was scripted, or am I just ma- totally making this up? I don't remember. I, I honestly can't tell you because I'm suffering Mandela effect too. What I'm, I can see that scene in my mind, but I don't know if I saw it then or I'm seeing it now. <laughs> I'm just writing it in. Um, I, I don't recall seeing it when when I when I when it was mail I first saw it. You know, I saw it live, and then I got the tapes, and yeah, I don't even have a, a VHS player anymore. I send all my tapes off now and have them converted to something I can see. Um, 
I'll have to. I haven't sent that one off yet. I'll have to check and see. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I mean, like I said, it might be there, but I'm beginning to suspect. I feel like I would have noticed it missing back up at the DVD stage. A when it was closer to when we made it. So I think I may have made it up in 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 the last decade or so in my head that I was there. I don't know. It's very disturbing <laughs> that I can't trust my own mind. <laughs> I'll, very, I'll, very disturbing. I'll investigate a little bit myself, <laughs> and then we'll find out. Any anyway, uh, Steve, I do appreciate that uh, scene with Goliath and Elisa at the clock tower where they both acknowledge they can't always be there to save the other, and I, which is one of the things I enjoy about that first scene over at the at, at the uh, general store. I mean you would expect the hero to come in and save the quote-unquote damsel from the monster, and that's not what happens. She manages to sort of drive it off herself, as well as the police showing up. But I love that can. That can that's sort of rocking back and the forth, can. and then she puts her finger on it to quiet it so she can hear, because for a second it's really quiet in that store, and all you can hear is the can sort of lolling back and forth. You know, and then she just does it. I'm like, I don't know who, I don't know if that was in the script or if that was just a storyboard artist, probably a story. It feels like a storyboard artist idea. Um, yeah. But I love that little touch, you know, to add that. It adds tension and it, it just, uh, and it's very well animated, which certainly doesn't hurt, you know. Um, but just seeing that can go back and forth until she puts finger down to just still it i just love that moment anyway what are you gonna say well, I, I was just gonna say i always had i've always had a fondness for strong female characters i i you know you, you're not the only person every once in a while you'll see a movie come along and they'll pop somebody up and you'll get princess leia in star wars or you'll get the terminator uh and in sarah connor it, it, it's great to see you know I mean, let's face it. This was not really just a children's show. Uh, this was this was aimed at adults who were paying attention. There was a lot of subtext going on here. All the writers that I know who who, who write for who, who've written for animation always want to make it better. They always want to put something in there and let people, you know, give them an option they can see it or not. But you know, you write on two levels. You write for one one age audience. It's like it's like that scene in Superman where you know Clark Kent comes out to pull off his his his, his clothes and change in Superman, and he sees a phone booth, and and then you pull back and realize it's not a phone booth. It's it's just the one little just a little tiny you know semi booth that they that they begin to put out. And that was not a scene for children. That was a, that was a scene for people who who remembered phone booths. And I think all of the writers that I know that have ever worked for TV that really had any fun with it. One of the reasons it comes across as fun is because they are having fun. They are writing things that, that they're reaching and trying to make it more than just about the script, more than just about the plot. And uh, that's the reason Gargoyles worked for so many people. Because there was stuff going on there, and you didn't always know what it was. But I think a lot of the, the people who were working on the show, writers and, and, and uh, storyboard people and, and producers, didn't know there was something going on. That's what they wanted to come across. You get a lot of stuff between the lines. It doesn't always have to be written down. And and when when you do it well, and obviously the show was done well, um, people remember that part. That's that's the little bit of business that when you go back and you watch, you watch it, you go, oh yeah, that was really clever. Um, you know, and it, it makes you happy to be part of that kind of stuff because there's, there's no limits to what you can do with animation. It's 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 not just just you know Saturday morning cartoons. It hasn't been for a long time, and I you know aside from being thrilled to have worked on a project that that has this much interest, what 26 years on, um, it it lets you do stuff as a writer that you know some of the shows that I worked on they didn't they weren't interested they didn't care you know just just you know stay with the beat outline and get the numbers. Um, that was not here. You had people that really wanted this to be good, and that makes all the difference. If everybody connected to a show like this wants it to be good and does their best, this is the kind of stuff you can get. Yeah, I agree. I mean, for a lot of us, it really was kind of, I mean, not that we didn't get paid, but it was a labor of love 
<laughs> you know, um, and uh, it, you know, we cared about it. We, it mattered to us. We just wanted to give almost selfishly. We wanted to create the best possible version of this show that we could manage um, and made that a priority. And so, you know, wherever we could increase the entertainment value, wherever we could manage to, you know, make it better, we uh, we tried to do that. One of the many things I love about this episode is seeing Xanatos do a speed run through his modus operandi. Plan A, plan B, plan C, D. I think we did make it to <laughs> E, actually. <laughs> <laughs> And you just see him laying. <laughs> and you just see him laying the tracks for the next plan as he be, as he begins to plan. It's 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 great. And and I and Elisa's response to all this, the fact that it is so transparent to her to the point where at the end, where she resignedly says to Goliath, "Ah, you're gonna help him, aren't you?" <laughs> Well, yeah. what happens when you have a character who's very smart and, and who can, you know, he's a chess master. He, this is what you do. Three-dimensional chess, like playing Spock. You know, you're not just playing on one level, you're playing on other levels, up and down. And that's, you know, it, it, it's a running gag, but at the same time, this is the way these people think. They're they're always six moves ahead of you. That's, that's the whole point. One of the, yeah, one of the mean, we, really great lines was... Um, when she, when Lisa finally convinces Goliath, you know, no, this is this is it. This is the plan. This is the next plan. You know, and uh, they go to leave, and Goliath says, "Not a good night for you." Yes. <laughs> I just loved that sick burn. <laughs> yes, he had it coming. <laughs> yeah, that was funny. <laughs> The funny, the funny thing is this remove is that, and this is long enough ago that I don't remember the ins and outs and the details, but I do know that it was a pretty collaborative effort. There were a lot of people coming back and forth, and it never bothered me as a writer. Someone said, said to me, can we, we, we can make this better. Let's, let's, let's sharpen this up. Let's make this better, let's, because that's what you want. You don't want somebody saying to you, and so some of the shows that I worked on, names I won't mention, where there was an essence of, well, this is not very stupid. We can make this more stupid if we if we try. Um, that was that was never the case here. And so somebody came and said, you know, what about this? And you look at that and you go, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's let's put that in there. Um, that's what you do when you get good collaborators. People people will riff on each other and they'll say, well, you know, we could try this. Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. We could try that. No, that's not such a good idea. And you go back and forth and you're willing to listen to somebody else's opinion. Because the goal is to make it better. And we're, this is a collaborative medium. It always has been. And, you know, I, I don't see that that's likely to change, you know, even with, with the advent of super CGI. You're still going to have people that have to go through and try to do the best they can. And shoot, I mean, it, it, I have to say, you, know, you, you, you make a top 10 list of animated TV series. You know, I don't see anything that's going to knock garbles out of that anytime soon. Nope. I have a question about Elisa's uh, dress. Did the coming up with the idea of it, of her being able to take the skirt off, come up as a fix it for Fox being naked as she come as she's no longer aware Fox, or was it always going to be like some cool dress thing? Like because that was freaking brilliant. <laughs> I, it's hard to be sure this much longer, but I think it was always designed to be. Uh, the solution to uh, the Fox nudity problem. <laughs> um, I mean, again, we were a syndicated show um, with no network S and I think that if we had been a network show with, um, you know, ABC's S and P like they had in Goliath Chronicles or, you know, NBC or CBS, um, they would have said, yeah, she can't be, we can't even imply that she's naked. So, you know, put her in some, uh, you know, torn version of the trench coat or whatever. I mean, I, I don't think it would have cared what the solution was, but they would have uh, wanted there to be a solution. And we wanted to try uh, to preserve the reality of it. You know, we've got this fan, 
phantasmagoria uh, premise here. Um, but we wanted to always ground it in reality. So the idea was that, no, no, she's naked under the fur. Um, and so Elise's dress, having that uh, skirt come off and then, and then, you know, I, I'm very glad that you do see the holster on her leg there because then I won't, I don't feel like I'm completely crazy. Um, but, uh, but, you know, that idea that, that she pulls that off, she covers Fox with that um, for Fox's sake, you know, as a fellow woman saying, yeah, I'm not leaving this poor woman who's just been through this horrific transformation, just lying there naked on the ground. Maybe the men would do that, but I'm not going to do that. And, um, and, you know, it's a little risque for Elisa as well, because, you know, not that she's naked under that skirt, she's not, but, you know, suddenly, you know, she's, uh, in essence in her underwear underneath there. Uh, or lingerie, however you want to describe it. Mini skirt garters. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's a interesting moment from the standpoint of a afternoon cartoon. <laughs> but um, uh, but we did it not for the sort of uh, you know purient interest. It was like let's try and ground this in reality, and yet do it in such a way that we can a do it. You know that someone won't stop us. And B, uh, make it feel like this is still coming out of character, that Elise is doing this, you know, Elise is making a choice and she's doing it. And, um, and it's about respect as opposed to the reverse. So, so I think it was always to just to get in my roundabout way as usual, getting back to the actual answer to your question, Jennifer, um, is that I do think it was always intended that for that, you know, that that was going to be our plan to do it. I mean, it all fits together. You've got the Beauty and the Beast dress, so Belle's yellow gown has the material, in essence, to cover Fox up. It's not like she shows a, a dress where it's a mini skirt and she wouldn't cover anything. <laughs> you know? um, so I think there's that. And, and that leads into what I think is this sort of great moment where Goliath demands the eye of Odin from Xanatos and Xanatos is assuming that what Goliath is saying is, okay, I'm standing here in front of Fox. You want to take her back. You bet. You have to give me the eye. Like that in essence, Goliath uh, is offering a Goliath, uh, as if he's Fox got, or the, or the eye one or the other. What do you want? Right. Yeah. As if he's holding Fox hostage. And of course that's not, <laughs> what Goliath is saying at all. Goliath is just saying, give me the eye. I don't trust you with it. And Xanatos just can't perceive it that way. He, he perceives everything as being transactional. Um, so he gives him the eye and he's like, well, now I guess you know my weakness. And then Goliath has one of, I think, uh, uh, Steve, one of the greatest lines in the whole series, which is Goliath, you know, staring Xanatos down and saying, only you would perceive love as a weakness. Um, and I just think that's just so emblematic of both those two characters and their conflict with each other. Um, and also the road toward, to the extent that they are reconciled, their eventual reconciliation in the latter half of the season. That, um, Xanatos is always going to be Xanatos, but they don't have to be as far at odds as they are at other times because ultimately Xantos learns the lesson that love is a strength, not a weakness, which is where Goliath lives, you know? Yeah. Um, and then of course you get the ultimate romantic Owen <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> who comes in and goes, um, you know, uh, actually I think you've never looked more heroic, sir, or whatever it is that Owen says, which is also to me just this precious moment. Xanta sort of, you know, <laughs> regains his own, and it's like, oh, you stop it, you crazy Owen, you know, uh, let's just go home, you know, we're all good, everything's good, you know, I'm sure Fox won't be traumatized by this at all, let's just go home, you know. <laughs> I, I love Owen's little smirk there, though, at the end, that's great. Yeah, 
just closing on him smirking. I'm like, oh, you old softy Owen. Owen totally uh, ships them. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of wonderful little touches in this episode, and a lot of little nods. That I've I always expected that scene in the uh, in the butcher market was a nod to both Alien and Predator Two. <laughs> Uh, maybe I don't remember I know that the scene on the roof at the end is clearly a nod to Highlander one of our many nods oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, I don't remember specifically talking about alien or predator uh, maybe I can't remember I don't know if you do Steve but I don't remember that I, I don't. We, it, it's obviously something we would have done if we'd have thought about it. Um, and and uh, if people see that in there, I'm, I'm happy with that. But I have to say, the Highlander thing, the first time I heard John Reed Davies do the voice, uh, Macbeth, I thought, how the hell did they get Sean Connery to do the voice here? He really does sound like Connery. No, it's John Reed Davies. <laughs> but yeah, um, I apologize, but I'm running out of time here. I've got to get going. Um, right. But uh, I've had a really good time. This has been fun. I'm sorry. Right, I always seem to be the one who has to cut it short. But I, is, you guys, yeah, let's wrap. You let's wrap it all up. Yeah, let's. This is coming out October 14th. Is there anything you two want to plug? I got so many books going so many times and so much stuff going on. I can't remember where it all is. Um, I'll just plug uh, Young Justice Targets, uh, comic from DC Comics in October. Oh, I have no idea what issues will be out because uh, their release schedule is so bizarre with three different release dates per issue, depending on whether it's Comixology or DC Universe Infinite or in print. But it'll still be coming out in October, so um, <laughs> uh, so I don't know what issue it'll be. But if you're ha- if you're not reading Young Justice Target, please do. And to all Gargoyles fans, go to your local comic shop if you have one and ask them to place the Dynamite Gargoyles comic on order for you. Yeah, that'll be coming out in December of 2022. December 2022 will be the first issue of uh, Gargoyles number one from Dynamite Comics. Awesome. Excellent. Awesome. Steve, thank you so much for joining us today. This was a lot of fun. It really was. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Nice to talk to you again, Greg. Take care. You too, Steve. And to all of our listeners, you have thank you for listening and join us next time for Vows, where our cast breaks the second law of thermodynamics.